Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I'm not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we do something zeitgeisty. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to talk about rare Mormon document collecting in the 1980s, fast cars, fully automatic Uzis, betrayal, and pipe bombs. <laughs> what's, That's what? What's zeitgeisty about that? <laughs> That's right. We're looking at the life and crimes of Mark Hoffman. Uh So this episode is inspired by the new documentary out on Netflix right now called Murder Among the Mormons. Oh, I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Usually you find some crazy, obscure, like off the beaten path. And this time you're like, what's on TV? Well, honestly, I just watched it and I was like, this is amazing. Uh And I think I didn't know what it was going to be. Like based on what I had heard about it and like the thumbnail and stuff. Uh So I I watched it and honestly, it's just like too good for me not to tell you about it. Okay. All right. Cool. So I decided, you know, this is our podcast. I'll tell you whatever I want. Yeah. I mean, that is how this thing started. You were like, I'm listening to this incredible thing. It's called Serial. And I was like, what is Serial? And then 10 years later, you still hate me. All right. No, I love you. Don't tell the people I hate you. You're all I've got. Um, Except except for some of our incredible listeners. We've got some very juicy shout outs this week. First of all, lots of loves goes out to Justin W. for finding the PayPal link in our social media bio and sending over some much appreciated dollars. Big thank yous go out to Addie, Ange, and Avery for signing up for our Patreon. And because of Nicole D. hitting up our Patreon in a major way, we are now just 15 more members away from reaching our first goal. Thank you so much, Addie. Ange, Avery, and Nicole, you are truly incredible. And we are just two Apple reviews shy of 100, which will be a cool three-digit accomplishment for us. Uh, We see those reviews, and we're going to shout out a few of the recent ones we've gotten during our outro this episode. It's going to be great. And thank you to everyone helping us trick the robots into getting our podcast out there. Yes. All right. Remember, everyone, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we tend to curse and joke around. So if you don't like those things, turn us off. And I guess there's going to be some spoiler alerts on this Netflix show. Well, I guess if you're like sitting here going like, oh man, I can't wait to watch that this weekend. Don't listen to this episode. (laughs) But I mean, this episode's Uh, not, uh, there's other research that went involved in it. It's not like a carbon copy of it, but it's the same idea. That's a little bit of a humble brag. She, she went off, she, she went off the deep end and also found new stuff to add to the story. Well, let's not go too far. I did a lot of Wikipedia reading. (laughs) Okay, great. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. I wish that for this episode we had one of those Netflix functions, you know, a thing built in that says, like, are you still watching? Like, okay, Nick, are you still paying attention to Muriel? Yes, continue to play. Uh, the bits, they continue on. <laughs> I'm hilarious. <laughs> All right, ready? Yes. 
1973, a 19-year-old, fresh-faced young man named Mark Hoffman traveled to Manchester, England to complete a two-year mission for his church. Mm -hmm. Like countless young people before him, Mark would perform community service and humanitarian aid, assist in church services, and try to convert the unwashed masses to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Which, because I watched that musical, or listened to the music, I, oh no, we did see it, Book of Mormon, you're talking about the Mormon Church. Yes. Okay, right. great. So, at the time in Salt Lake City, happening kind of simultaneously, the collecting and dealing in Mormon documents was really, really hot. What do you mean Mormon documents? Like early Mormon documents, like letters from Joseph Smith oh, and oh, different people okay. from the church. Right, Artifacts. Like it was a huge thing. It's oh. hard to call them artifacts because they were like 100 years old or something. Sure. But, but very much like that was a huge sort of hobby. It was blowing up in Salt Lake yeah, City Yeah, it was at like the, the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card of the time. Right. Okay. So during his mission, Mark was also known to have spent his time in rare bookshops and libraries hunting for early Mormon documents. Mm -hmm. And Manchester, in particular, was a special place for document hunting. In the 1800s, shortly after the religion was founded, many early Mormon missionaries spent their time in Manchester. And so as a result, there were actually lots of archive diaries, uh, used books, and Mormon documents in the area. Mm -hmm. Early Mormon documents were also hot at the time, partially because, like we said, the religion was so young. Uh -huh. Mormonism was founded in the early 1800s between like 1820 and 1830 in yeah. upstate New York. So there were still like piles of religious artifacts hidden away in attics and uh -huh. personal effects, libraries, family Bibles, all that kind of stuff. Right. It's kind of like conceivably you could possibly get like 100% of it. Right. And they had yeah. all survived the relatively short test of time, right? Uh -huh. Compared to artifacts from other older religions. Sure. Also, historical document collectors were fascinated by the origin story of this fairly new and really popular religion. Mm -hmm. So not only was it fun to collect these documents because there were tons of them and they still existed, but it was also fun because, you know, it's a pretty interesting religion. Yeah, right. And it was super popular at the time. And so people were always kind of trying to figure out, you know, you can almost really see Joseph Smith and his you know, life. You could right. trace back all those things really easily. Was there also profiting involved in this? People were buying them and selling them? Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's huge collecting, huge dealing, uh -huh. selling things for a lot of money. It's just like baseball cards, yeah. but also religious. And the church bought a lot of them. I guess I... <laughs> it's treasure I hunting on some say, level. It's like sometimes I say something and I'm like, wow. It's like very <laughs> clear that I'm not a religious person. Yeah, okay. That's just funny. <laughs> you just offended a, an entire religion. It's like baseball cards. Well, I'm the one who brought up Ken Griffey Jr. So and I'll we can be talking about the, Michael Jordan later. All right. <laughs> we can share the blame. Also, I'll add, according to the documentary Murder Among the Mormons, because of early mission work, and I'm assuming a lackluster market for Mormon documents compared to the U.S., there was this larger undiscovered trove of rare Mormon documents in England. It was larger than it was in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting place for Mark Hoffman to develop his interest, right? Right. And it was here in the dusty bookshops and libraries of Manchester where future Mormon document dealing rock star <laughs> Mark Hoffman yeah. cut his teeth. All right. Okay. So Mark Hoffman was born in 1954 in Salt Lake City, Utah to a very strict 
devout Mormon family. And just to give you a quick picture, as a teen, he was into like magic and chemistry and stamp and coin collecting. Mm -hmm. He was also an Eagle Stout by the time he was 14, which I think is actually a pretty significant accomplishment. Because I knew guys who were 18, they were Eagle Stouts. (laughs) So I think that's like an escalation, okay? So like basically he's like a very classic, wholesome dude, right? Well-rounded. Right. So after completing his mission, Mark Hoffman moved back to Salt Lake City to study pre-med at Utah State University. He married his wife, Dora Lee, in 1979. They would eventually have four children. Mm -hmm. And the year after Mark was married, he made his first major discovery. This was the discovery of the Anton transcript. So in order to understand the significance of this, I'm just going to give you, <laughs> I'm just going to give you Mormonism in a nutshell, according to Wikipedia. Okay, okay great. <laughs> I would like to also add, we have a listener who has been so generous and uh, she's studying theology and yeah. she's been really generous in helping me look for other cases right now Yeah, yeah. Um, and giving me tips for searching. And I will say I would have hit you up, but this happened kind of quick so okay <laughs> but anyway so well, I we also to, I had a wikipedia i think my brother was like do a mormon case and dylan asked for a mormon case yeah too, right? yeah 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 so i'm doing it for you guys okay all right great anyways <sighs> mormonism in a nutshell according to wikipedia great okay so there was a farm boy dude named joseph smith who lived in upstate new york in the early 1800s mm-hmm. okay he worked on this farm one day, according to Joseph Smith, God and Jesus Christ appeared to him and said, all existing religions are wrong mm-hmm. and that Joseph Smith himself would help God and Jesus to lead people to the correct religion, which right. would eventually be Mormonism. So a bunch of angel stuff happened that I'm not going to get really deep into. There's like lots of different visions. Okay, angels were involved. Angels were involved. Uh-huh. And eventually, in 1823, an angel named Moroni showed Joseph where a bunch of golden plates were buried on a hillside. Right. Now, inscribed on the plates was the text for the Book of Mormon, but it was written in hieroglyphs. So, Oh, that's cool. It was like Egyptian hieroglyphs, different kinds of things. Now, Joseph Smith doesn't know anything about that, right? He's just a farm boy, right? The problem was now this simple farm boy has to translate them. Mm -hmm. So another angel shows up with his help. He's able to translate the golden plates. He dictates them to his buddy, Martin Harris. Mm -hmm. And that transcript eventually became the Book of Mormon that we know and love today. How fucking cool would that be? (laughs) You're just hanging out and angels show up and they're like, hey, these golden plates, don't worry, we'll tell you what they mean. Like that is so, that rocks so hard. I know. I just keep, I I don't know. I want to be visited by angels so bad. Well, I'll try to do something for you. (laughs) You try to arrange something. Yeah. You got some connections out here. I mean, I am, I have a lot of trickery up my sleeve. Okay, I can great. probably try to make you feel like you saw some angels. <laughs> Definitely looking at something right now. Okay, so this is the Anthon transcript. This is Hoffman's big discovery. So according to Joseph Smith, mm-hmm. after he wrote down the characters from the golden plates and transcribed him, his buddy Martin Harris sent the transcription to a scholar at Columbia University named Charles Anthon, who was an expert in like lots of different stuff, Arabic, Egyptian hieroglyphs, all Mm -hmm. kinds of things. 
So this man, Anthon, apparently looked over Joseph Smith's hand drawings of the symbols of the plates and Joseph Smith's translation, and he was amazed. Mm -hmm. And he decided to sit down and write a letter authenticating the translation, saying basically the symbols that are sketched on the paper are real, and the translation of the symbols into English was perfect as far as he knew. That is just so cool. But... yeah. Apparently, this is according to, I think, Martin Harris. But apparently, when Martin Harris told Anthon that the symbols in translation came from this random farm boy who was talking to angels Mm -hmm. and hiding these secret golden plates, Anthon then tore up the the authentication letter. Really? So, and Anthon later has said that the entire story of looking at the translation mm-hmm. and saying that it's true and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Anthon later said that entire thing is a fabricated hoax between uh, oh. Martin Harris and Joseph Smith. Oh, okay. So that's that's what he's come to say. And he's like kind of waffled on that back and forth. Yeah. But at the time he was like, this is all fake, right? All right, cool. So all of that stuff we know now. One day in a Salt Lake City dining room in 1980, Dorley Hoffman came home to find an old 17th century Bible her husband, Mark Hoffman, had purchased on the dining room table. The Bible was allegedly previously owned by Joseph Smith's sister's granddaughter, right? Okay. So, Dorley opens the Bible and she notices there's a folded piece of paper stuck to the first page with this black, gummy substance. Hmm. So she calls Mark over and together they pry off the gummy substance. And unfold the paper and the paper was in Joseph Smith's distinctive handwriting and it showed the hand drawings of the symbols on the golden plates along with his translation. So this is the original document thought to be authenticated by Charles Anthon in 1828 that he, Damn. That he said was totally fake. Oh man, do they, uh, are they counterfeiters? I just get, okay, now I really want to know if that's real. Is that really it? So Mark's discovery was explosive. He Uh became famous overnight Mm -hmm. in the Mormon document community and ended up selling the document for $20,000. So that's around $67,000 in today's money. Oh, that's like one Bitcoin. I feel like he could have done better than that. Well, I don't know. So he sells sells it for $20,000 to the LDS church, which Uh is what you would call Latter-day Saints. Latter-day Saints. So that's the abbreviation mm-hmm. we'll use from now on. So cool. she sold it to the LDS church. It was then, after that, chuffed up, high on life, Mark decided to quit school and become a full-time rare document dealer. Hell yeah, I would too. Are you kidding me? <laughs> that shit sounds fun. Like those uh, garage pickers or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I want to do that right now. Your dad texts me about that. Your dad's got a metal detector. Oh my We're ready God, to my go. My dad in the metal detector. <laughs> I'm down, man. That shit sounds cool. Oh, he's, oh, I don't know if he's ever used it, but he's talked to me about it a lot. I'm pretty sure it's in the box still. <laughs> so I want to give you a glimpse yeah. into the wild world of rare document collection. Please in do. In Salt Lake City in the 1980s. Oh, my God. So community bookstores were these rad-ass Mormon history coffee houses at the time. Mm-hmm. So the center of this movement was in all these rare bookstores, and collectors would gather to talk shop there. So it was a really mm-hmm. electric scene, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where Mark Hoffman met his buddy, Shannon Flynn. So Mark and Shannon were a 
badass duo in this world, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mark basically basically looked like a ginger version of Jason Schwartzman from Rushmore. <laughs> 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 You're like, they were a badass duo. The first one, literally, literally the dweebiest person you could imagine. And then Shannon was this thick boy. He was baby-faced. Uh-huh. He had a strong center part, and he would sometimes wear suspenders for his pants. Oh, nice. So he's just straight up a big buff alfalfa? No, he was more thick than buff. You know, like he was more like a... Oh, he's a little juicy alfalfa? He was a juicy alfalfa. <laughs> So, but these guys are like the badass uh-huh. ones, right? Uh-huh. So Mark would instruct Shannon and other guys in his squad to do these deep dives into prominent Mormon families to see if they could locate documents. So they would like track down old letters, go through family Bibles, like go through people's attics, do all uh-huh. that kind of stuff, looking for documents. Mark was just extremely talented at finding rare documents. He just knew what he was looking for. Uh He had this encyclopedic knowledge of so much of the way that things were communicated that he could identify things really quickly if he looked into a bookshop. He knew exactly what he was looking for. That's how I feel like when I go to Nordstrom Rack to find a good shirt. I know. know You're good at it. I'm really good. Put me in a Marshalls. I'll find the one thing that I need in my wardrobe, you know? (laughs) So eventually... Um, with his talent, Mark branched out to all kinds of historical documents, not just Mormon artifacts. And he was so good at what he did. <laughs> like lots of people compared him to Michael Jordan. <laughs> um, but Shannon was yeah. Mark's right-hand man. Uh-huh. All right. Most of the deals they made were in cash. Mm-hmm. So Shannon would always carry an empty briefcase uh, and they would scoop the piles of cash into the briefcase. So Shannon was like the briefcase carrier. Piles of cash? So they would just show up and, and sell do these them? deals. So like the twenty thousand dollars he would sell these documents for would be in cash. Would be in cash. <sighs> okay, <laughs> okay, it's starting to make sense. This is a murder story. Okay, <laughs> right. I lost track of that for a second. Okay, so eventually Mark was balling out of control. He bought a bright blue Toyota MR2. Do you know what that looks no. like? It's like a it's a very boxy little car. It was uh-huh. the first. Um, version of this car in the United States okay. like in 19 whatever 83 or 84 uh-huh. um but it's a little two seat sports car that could go 0 to 60 in 8 seconds so it's really really fast and they tool around the desert yeah. according to Shannon Mark also gave him the money to buy a fully automatic Uzi that they would take turns shooting out in the desert man what could be more fun yeah, they were like kind of riding high on life. Yeah. By the mid 80s, Mark was this kind of Mormon baller. He was really into status. He had like expensive things like the latest camcorder uh-huh. or moon boots or whatever you buy in the 80s. <laughs> it's like, well, you got to have the newest thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his wife, Dorley, for her part, she describes that time is feast or famine situation. Mm-hmm. Basically, that Mark was bringing in a lot of cash. But he would often use it to invest back into purchasing more documents. So he was always carrying a lot of debt and Mm -hmm. needing to kind of, you know, that phrase of like rob Peter to pay Paul or whatever. Like he was always shifting money around. Mm -hmm. Is that also a a Bible thing? Or is that like... I always thought that was Peter, Paul, and Mary. (laughs) 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 It probably is a Bible thing. I don't know. Yeah, right. (laughs) So... Uh, she said it was always kind of a little sketchy. Uh-huh. It felt like she didn't have anything to do with the business side and she never knew anything about his work. She just raised the four kids and stayed at home. But she said occasionally like 
they would get these angry voicemails on their personal family you know voicemail machine and yeah. stuff from people are saying like hey you were supposed to give me this check three days ago da, 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 da. oh so so far no one is saying hey this thing that you sold me is clearly fake no it's it's moving money around mm-hmm. you know that's where the beef is that's where the beef is right. but overall things are trending upward right he was making more and more money they were able to finance more and more things mm-hmm. you know there's more money coming in than there was you know before right, right. um and in 1983, Mark made huge waves with another discovery. So Shannon Flynn, his buddy with the Uzi, remembers meeting Mark in this hush-hush emergency meeting in this, I believe it was a hotel room. So he shows up and Mark Hoffman wants him to photograph a document that he's found because he was worried that it could be stolen or destroyed mm-hmm. in the short amount of time that he has it. So he opens this briefcase and he pulls out the salamander letter, okay? So Mark had found a document that would totally rock the Mormon world. So remember the golden plates Mm -hmm. that the angel Moroni had led? Right. You know, he led them to the golden plates? Yeah. Well, in 1983, Mark Hoffman found a letter written by Joseph Smith's old buddy, Martin Harris, that told a different story. All right. Martin Harris said that Joseph Smith was actually led to the Golden Plates by a magical talking white salamander. Really? Like a little one or yeah. like a big human size kind one? Kind of a bigger one, but not as big as a human. So like the, the gecko from Geico? Yeah. But a salamander who's white? And talks and is magical. What else could he do besides talk that's magical? Know where plates are? Well, yeah, know where the plates are. Tell him, like, go to these magical okay, he plates. Also, like, He's like, floating around Jesus and, like, is a salamander. <laughs> <laughs> that is so, oh, my God, that sounds so cool. So, I used to see shit like that playing out in the woods at my grandma's house. <laughs> just saying, I did. Like a salamander? Yeah, or, yeah. you know, you're just like, oh, there's, no, but like a magical salamander. Not you know? when it talked to you. I mean, I thought it talked to me, yeah. but... <laughs> I can't. I was a kid. You yeah, know? Right. yeah. Then I told Shane that there were little, like, little Elfkin people that were like three inches tall that lived out in the woods, and he believed me. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, kids are kind of dumb. Yeah. All right. Now, <laughs> the church uh-huh. was really pissed, uh-huh. right? Because the letter made it sound like they were just making everything up, right? People were calling it Salamander Gate. Haters were coming out of the woodwork (laughs) and the LDS elders wanted to shut the letter down. So the LDS church actually had a history of, I mean, promoting favorable documents to the church, for instance, like the Anton transcript, right? Right. But also hiding damaging documents to the church, Mm -hmm. such as the magical talking salamander with golden plates. So according to Murder Among the Mormons, the church uh, has even today, a document archive that only high-ranking members can access. So that's allegedly where the bad documents go. And Mark was worried the church would try to bury the salamander letter. So he made copies and gave them to trusted collectors in his circle. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Mark got the salamander letter authenticated and sold it to a collector named Stephen Christensen. Uh, He sold it for $40,000, so that's about eleven. dollars one hundred and eleven thousand dollars in today's money. Mm-hmm. Two bitcoins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh god! It's actually it's, it's, Bitcoin's dipping right now, so it's not exactly. But. It's also you know 
pretty a lot of money. I would be pumped if I had that much. I money. mean, I would sell anything in this house for two bitcoins. <laughs> anything. <laughs> I'll sell everything in this house for two bitcoins. <laughs> I mean, what you're saying is basically like being like, yeah, I mean, basically like eight gold bars. I mean, things cost money. <laughs> It doesn't matter if there's two of them or like 10 of them. It's all the same amount. <laughs> but I'm just saying. <laughs> I get, I get We're it. We're talking about also, treasure and weird mystical things such as cryptocurrency. All I right. Think it, I think it tracks. Okay. So anyways, we're focusing back. Now. Are you still watching? Steven Christensen then mm-hmm. takes the salamander letter and donates the letter to the LDS church for them to bury in their archives. So... Even though they accepted the letter, the president of the LDS church at the time, Gordon B. Hinckley, released a very salty statement regarding the letter, basically saying, yes, we acquired the salamander letter, and yes, it has been authenticated, but I'm pretty sure it was created in the 1830s by a bad apple trying to make fun of our religion. So he's saying even though it's real on all counts, it doesn't mean it wasn't some jerk out there trying to just like make fun of them right yeah right yeah that makes sense so time goes on the lds church is kind of reeling from this revelation people are questioning their faith about it and in 1985 mark hoffman hits the money load again so he does he keeps finding between all this time he's still finding lots of documents and he's selling them and and doing that he's he's really but this guy's already rocked the mormon church twice he gets a third one it's not the mormon church okay he finds an original print of something called the oath of a freeman so this was a document printed in the 1630s and it's believed to be the first document ever printed in the american colonies. so it was thought that no other original copies actually survived mm-hmm. but he found one right and through his agents and an Americana dealer in New York City, Mark was able to negotiate a $1.5 million, which is about $3.8 million in today's money. Hell yeah. $1.5 million asking price for the document. One of the potential buyers at the time was the Library of Congress. And then there was also the idea being floated around that the oath would be mounted to the base of the Statue of Liberty after it was purchased. This guy is playing in the big leagues right now right right so you know it's a big deal it's a ton of money so the oath was then sent out for extensive forensic testing mm-hmm. and chemical analysis just to make sure this 300 plus year document was in fact authentic right? totally of course so right. that's out in the universe that's being tested that same year while mark was waiting for the sale of the oath to go through and the authentication he made Yet another incredibly damaging discovery regarding the Mormon church. Okay. Okay, so while he was hunting for documents in upstate New York, Mark found a box of documents belonging to the estate of William McClellan. So this is a founding member of the Latter-day Saint movement who eventually broke with Joseph Smith in 1838 and then spent a few years like messing with him after they parted ways. Okay. He ended up being like super anti Joseph Smith. And at one point when Smith was in jail, like at some point in history, McClellan allegedly went to Smith, Joseph Smith's house and like ransacked his house and like messed up his barn and stables. (laughs) And then he went to the sheriff who was holding Smith and was like, I want to flog him. And it, uh, the story is just really crazy. He's like, I want to flog Joseph Smith. And the sheriff's like, okay, you can flog him. 
but what is that whipping someone what is a flaw yeah he wants to beat him basically he's like let me beat joseph smith just for like religious persecution yeah and then the jailer's like i'm not gonna let you beat him uh-huh i mean i will let you do it but i'm gonna take him out of his chains and then mcclellan is like no i don't want you to take him out of his chains. <laughs> i don't want to fight joseph smith. right and he goes okay 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 do that but i get a club and Joseph Smith doesn't get a weapon. <laughs> and they're like negotiating. And then the sheriff was like, no, this is all a bad idea. Go home, right? So that didn't happen. Right. But he's a very anti-Joseph Smith. <laughs> what did Joseph Smith ever do to him? Just I can't even go into it. All right. I mean, I think it's it's so much more complicated. This is like the foundation of a religion. And they right. like split because of like ideological differences. Sure, 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 and, sure. You know, okay. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> the McClellan collection included a handful of journals written by mcclellan himself and a letter from joseph smith's wife emma the letter says that joseph smith and emma and you know Harriet, all the people who've been around mm -hmm. actually had been lying and the person who had actually found the golden plates wasn't joseph smith it was his brother mm. so it's kind of saying he's actually not the prophet joseph right. smith's brother is the prophet did she say anything about the white salamander? Not that I read about. Yeah. But just that they, she wanted to get this thing off her chest, right? Yeah. That that the prophets are mixed up, right? Got it. So after the salamander thing, this was pretty crappy news for the church, right? Mm -hmm. And once again, Stephen Christensen, the man who had previously bought the salamander letter and donated it back to the church. Uh, he swoops in and he makes an appointment with Mark Hoffman to negotiate the sale of the McClellan collection, allegedly for around $300,000. Now, this is a private sale between two people. It's not on behalf of the church, but mm -hmm. everybody kind of knows it's on behalf of the church. Right, so they can the bury idea. it. Right. So the idea that everything needs to remain a strict secret, mm -hmm. right? So on October 15th, 1985... At 8.15 a.m., there was a massive explosion on the sixth floor of the judge building in downtown Salt Lake City. The only victim of the nail wrap pipe bomb was purchaser of rare Mormon documents, Stephen Christensen. Are, are you going to unpack that? What are you talking about? What, do you mean, what am <laughs> what? I talking about? There's a pipe bomb? What just happened? They're negotiating, buying the McClellan collection. Yes. They're about to exchange money for the McClellan collection. Yes. On the morning that they were going to do that sale. Yes. They blew him up? Stephen Christensen walked into his office, picked up a package that had a nail wrap pipe, a nail wrap pipe bomb in it, and it killed him instantly. Well, I'm sorry for <laughs> being like, what? Maybe I didn't write it right. <laughs> I mean, you just sort of like, yeah. And then on the next morning, he was um, uh, the only person that died in the pipe bomb incident was this guy. It's I like, didn't say it like that. <laughs> okay. Jesus Christ. So a pipe bomb is is vicious too. That yeah. shit is. I mean, not that I've ever died from a pipe bomb, but that's that's brutal. Now on the same day, mm -hmm. about an hour later at nine twenty eight a.m. A woman named Kathy Sheets was killed by a second pipe bomb on the porch of her Salt Lake City home. Who's she? 
Kathy Sheets was the wife of Stephen Christensen's business partner, Gary Sheets. Uh, Gary Sheets had also helped finance the purchase oh. of the Salamander letter in the past. So maybe it was meant for him and then she was the one that died? After this, the city is just obviously in an uproar. No yeah. one knows what's going on. Police have zero leads. Right. And then the Salt Lake Tribune gets an anonymous call saying there were four more bombs hidden in the area. The bombs themselves, after investigation, after investigators went in, looked to be professionally made. Uh-huh. So police were stumped. But professionally they, made? What does that mean? From a factory or just someone who's really good at making them? They had specific, not from a factory, but they had like these specific detonators that were kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. So they just looked like somebody who had practiced. Who had experience, right, yeah. With, okay. Who had experience with pipe bombs. Great. It wasn't like pipe bombs ordered off Amazon. <laughs> no, they don't sell those. I'm sure there isn't even a bomb factory. <laughs> so the next day yeah. on October 16th, with the whole rare document community on edge and tensions running high, the discovery of the McClellan documents was leaked to the press as mm-hmm. well as LDS president Gordon Hinckley's desire to purchase the collection. Mm-hmm. So they, they, even though this deal is supposed to be top secret, yeah. It's leaked to the press. We have these documents and the church wants to get their hands on them. The church is They have to- the documents or they just know the documents exist. The documents exist. Okay. And they're leaking to the press. Oh, also the right. church has this interest in purchasing them. Yeah. So the church releases a statement right away. They adamantly denied any plans to purchase the collection. But Hinckley also publicly stated, you know, I was never going to buy it, but... It was supposed to be donated yesterday and he wanted it in his possession as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, I never said I was going to buy it, but as far as I know, you guys were going to donate it to me. So Hinckley said that Mark Hoffman was supposed to have given Christensen the documents on the morning he was killed, but Hoffman had rescheduled their meeting for 2 PM. So Christensen was killed before the exchange could happen. Right. Now, after the media frenzy, police are still searching for whoever is laying these pipe bombs. And a few hours after Gordon B. Hinckley's statement, Mark Hoffman was blown up in a car bombing along with the McClellan collection, which was in his trunk. Oh, my God. Did Hinckley order the hit on? Is he is the is the is the main LDS dude bombing all these people? So Mark was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. He was covered in glass. He was missing fingers, mangled, but still alive. Good. Now, at this point, Salt Lake City is like, what the hell is going on out (laughs) here, right? Right. The Salt Lake City homicide prosecutor, Jerry D'Elia, and Michael George, the Salt Lake chief investigator, didn't have much to go off of. But the gut feeling for both of them was that it had something to do with the LDS church, Mm -hmm. right? So they interviewed Hinckley, and immediately they didn't get anywhere, right? Hinckley says, I have no records of meeting with Mark Hoffman for any reason. And he even went one further saying, oh, and I never keep records of any meetings as a rule, which obviously lit up some bullshit meters, but Mm -hmm. they were just 
seemingly stonewalling, right? Right. We don't we don't know Mark Hoffman. We don't deal with Mark Hoffman, right? They're like, well, obviously you do. So what right, are you talking about? right, right, right. I think Stephen Christensen was the buffer, right, between mm-hmm. Mark Hoffman and the church. So that's, they could claim that they don't deal with him, right? Exactly. But anyway, the investigation moves on from that, right? And by mm-hmm. October nineteenth, investigators considered most of the members of the rare document community as suspects, <laughs> really? right? But the biggest suspect, yeah. Was Mark Hoffman's good friend Alfalfa and associate Shannon Flynn? Juicy Alfalfa. Yes. Why? Wait. What's so suspicious about this document collecting community? They're all just a bunch of like, uh, you know, let's dig through the old boxes. They're like vinyl collectors or something. Well, it's just the connection between between Stephen Christensen and Mark Hoffman, who both got blown up. Yeah. And Kathy Sheets, whose husband financed the Salamander Letter. The the connection is. Mormon document. Okay. And Shannon Flynn is a suspect because of his close proximity with Mark Hoffman, right? Mm -hmm. He works full time with Mark Hoffman, carrying briefcases full of cash, you know, and he had this reputation in the community for acting a little bigger than his britches. Mm. Like he was James Bond or something. He's really into the like mystique of that. And what kind of percentage of the deals is he getting? Like, is he paid out fat from all these big sales that homie's taking all the glory for? I don't know, but he did uh, work full time and that was his only job. Mm-hmm. That's all I know. Okay. So he's an employee, basically. He's not like a full partner. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. No, he's not. a Mark Hoffman is the leader. Okay. I, I think it's more like an employee relationship. Okay. So they pull him in, right? They pull in Shannon Flynn for questioning. And after an interview, they are more suspicious, right? So they arrest him and they search his home where they find lots of guns. They find the Uzi along with a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook, right? And I was going to talk about the Anarchist Cookbook. Which has instruction for building pipe bombs. Yeah. So if anybody's unfamiliar, it's this like classic anarchist, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. handbook. <laughs> yeah, it's like basically how to make Molotov cocktails and bombs and... All kinds of stuff like yeah. that. But despite all that... Police really found nothing linking Shannon specifically to the bomb. So like no bomb making materials, Mm -hmm. other types of plans, no other incriminating evidence. And then they brought him into the station and he passed a lie detector test with flying colors. So after a thorough look, they had to let Shannon Flynn go. But investigators caught a break when a witness who was working at the judge building the day of the bombing came forward with some information. So this guy said, on the morning before the bombing, a clean-cut guy in a green letterman jacket was wandering around a dark sixth floor with a package trying to find Steve Christensen's office. So <laughs> this after- guy, all this hella longer later, this guy comes forward with this information? Yeah, so it's like maybe five days later. So. Oh, okay, I guess it's not so After this detail hit the press, investigators got a flood of calls. If the rare Mormon document community knew anything, (laughs) it was that Mark Hoffman always wore a green letterman jacket. Oh, so maybe he blew himself up? (laughs) I found this way of just ignoring your question, which I just (laughs) seems like it's making me laugh on the inside, but it's definitely making things move faster. Why, just by ignoring me? I'm just ignoring (laughs) you. You haven't noticed this whole time, which is really funny. Okay. (laughs) 
So as soon as Mark is released from the <laughs> you hospital. You have a great way of not making me feel ignored while ignoring me. It's a very right. Tai Chi, black belt master kind of uh, spouse, spousal art form. Yeah. I feel like really pretty like into myself about that. All right. Okay. So Pipe I, bomb. Stop, Boom. Stop. So as soon as, not funny. As soon as Mark was released from the hospital, uh-huh. the police came a knocking with a search warrant. Investigators thought they were going to hit pay dirt, right? They were like, we've got mark hoffman where we want him but they also found no bomb making materials just Mm -hmm. boxes and boxes and boxes of documents books old paper ink and a green letterman jacket hanging in mark's closet Mm -hmm. right so police took 30 boxes of evidence out of the hoffman home in a big truck and they took it back to the station to analyze but off the bat nothing obviously connected mark to the bombings and Anyone who graduated from Olympus High School had the same jacket, right? right? Like the Mm -hmm. thrift stores in Salt Lake were full of them. So they take Mark into the station. They give him a lie detector test. He passes that with flying colors. Mm -hmm. And besides that, absolutely no one involved felt police had the right guy. So it was practically back to square one again. Mm -hmm. In terms of Mark Hoffman, the investigator's main issue was they just couldn't find any kind of motive that would connect Mark to the bombings, right? So like, why? Like, uh-huh. he was just going to make a ton of money on the sale with Stephen Christensen. Like, why would he do those things? Yeah. And on top of that, he got blown up too, right? So they, they really couldn't figure out how that made any sense. But one day, while slogging through boxes of evidence taken from Mark Hoffman's home police found a strange invoice. (sighs) Okay. It was an invoice written out to a man named Mike Hansen from Cox and Clark Engraving in Denver, Colorado. So investigators called the number on the invoice pretending to be this guy named Mike Hansen, right? Uh And they asked for an itemized receipt to go along with the invoice for the records. So oh, can you just send it over? <laughs> that sounds fun. I want to be a cop now. <laughs> so right. in a few days, they received an invoice for a printing plate that read Desiree Currency Association. Now, <laughs> I feel like Rachel Maddow right now. <laughs> <laughs> Stick with me, folks. We know. <laughs> this is going to be a long one, but I promise you're going to be into it. Now, According to the Utah History Encyclopedia, before the American Civil War, there was no national currency, right, in uh-huh. the U.S. So the LDS Church actually minted its own money for its own use. Mm-hmm. And the name Desiree Currency Association was printed on early money minted by the LDS Church. Now, Mark Hoffman began his document dealing career with coins and rare LDS currency. Mm. So... He was making fake old documents and fake old money. Mark Hoffman could definitely have used these plates to make forgeries. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty soon after that, they send the Salamander letter to the FBI for authentication. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's a fake. (laughs) (laughs) In December 1985... Oath of a Freeman came back from testing. And it's a fake. <laughs> and yeah. it was ruled as authentic. Oh, whoa. So 
while Mark and his associates were waiting for the final sale of the oath to go through, mm-hmm. the results came back from the FBI for the salamander letter. And they were fake. And it was also genuine, according to the FBI. Wow. <laughs> Where are you at now, Cassellini? <laughs> Lost. Are you still watching? <laughs> no, quit saying that. You like this. <laughs> How are you lost? You get it. <laughs> no, okay. So this guy is the real deal, but probably printed fake money at some point. You don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing, Jon Snow. So all this is going on, right? Uh-huh. And it looks like despite all this controversy, Mark Hoffman's about to come into $1.5 million, right? But... A forensic examiner dude and state special agent named George Throckmorton, who is rocking on behalf of Salt Lake City Police Department, Mm -hmm. thought Mark Hoffman was absolutely full of crap, right? (laughs) So this dude, he had a little team and they spent a massive amount of time going over the salamander letter with a fine tooth comb, trying to figure out, find any Mm -hmm. inconsistencies, Everything looked correct. Mm -hmm. But one day, he found something. The ink on the document had these strange microscopic cracks. It's odd. It's something that Throckmorton hadn't seen before, Mm -hmm. and he has this long career of doing stuff. So he decides to go to the LDS Church archives, and he pulls out a handful of documents that the church acquired before Mark Hoffman was even born, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. there's no way Mark Hoffman would have any access to these documents. Yeah. They find no ink cracking. Mm-hmm. However, every single document that the church had acquired that had any connection to Mark Hoffman, every single thing that Hoffman had personally handled had the exactly the same microscopic ink cracking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they're finding something, right? right. With this information, police then go out to a couple of other engraved plate manufacturers and printers with a copy of Hoffman's An Oath of a Freeman, right? His mm-hmm. $1.5 million thing. So they're walking around, they go into a print shop, and a guy from Debuzak Printing took one look at Hoffman's oath and said, oh yeah, I made this plate for a guy named Mike Hansen. (laughs) Yeah, right. Right? The same Mike Hansen who received the invoice from the plate maker in Colorado. Not only that, he said, Mike Hansen, nice guy. He paid in cash, but he was $2 short. So he had to pay it with a check. And then he handed police over the check record. (laughs) Had the same crack. And the check was written from the account of Mark Hoffman. Okay, Mark Hoffman, Mike Hansen. (laughs) Oh, my God. So the oath yeah. was also a forgery. Sure. And police finally had some sort of a motive, right? See, this guy was just born a couple couple years too late. You know, if he had been doing this 100 years prior to all this, he would have died a trillionaire. Yeah, he would have gotten away. Well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. Cool, cool, cool. A lot of Bitcoins. Okay. So they charged <laughs> Mark with the bombings. Uh-huh. And Mark Hoffman immediately confessed. Really? Yes. They charged him with the bombings based on the fact that the the things were fake yes and like uh, there's mounting evidence but okay. i mean like essentially they're trying to find some sort of connection to the bombings they arrest him and charge him mm-hmm. with the bombings because he's the only person who's still alive who would mm-hmm. have a reason to blow up people who might know his secret right? right okay so mark said 
he was worried Steve Christensen would have exposed him for his forgeries. And by the time of the bombing, suspicions were rising in the community about Mark's constant miraculous findings, you know? In fact, Christensen's wife told the press later that Steve was actually preparing to confront Mark Hoffman before he was murdered. Mm -hmm. People were starting to get their hackles up about whether or not this was happening. The night before the bombings, Mark was super chill as he put together the pipe bombs while he decided who would be killed. So he bought all the things to make the pipe bombs. He also practiced blowing up the pipe bombs in the desert, but he still didn't know who he was going to kill the night before the bombings. He hadn't decided yet. Who who else was on the list, possibly? Just a bunch of people. He just didn't mm-hmm. want anyone to know what happened. Mm-hmm. And no one exactly knew what happened, but it really, more than anything, was a distraction, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. You know, more than like, this guy knows my secret, so I'm going to blow him up. So he decided to kill Steve Christensen in case Steve was planning to out him. Mm-hmm. So he felt like Steve was the biggest threat. The bomb that killed Kathy Sheets was actually supposed to be just a diversion bomb to throw some randomness into the situation. Mark said he rigged it with a detonator that was kind of faulty with a 50-50 chance of actually going off. But although he had the capability of making sure it didn't go off, he chose not to. He didn't want to make it too faulty because he thought of the bombing as kind of a game. So he wanted to leave some randomness into it. Yeah, then do it in a tree in the middle of a park where you know no one's going to be there. No, I think it's very illustrative of him being a psychopath. Yeah. <laughs> like, That's horrible. It's like no country for all men or whatever. Uh. Mark says he, he just didn't think it mattered who the bomb killed. He could kill a child, a dog, Kathy Sheets, whatever. He just wanted a distraction. Oh, oh, okay. In Mark's opinion, none of the deaths were some great tragedy because any of the people he killed could have died in a car accident or something anyway, so it didn't matter. Now, Mark said that- What? (laughs) So this guy, yeah, okay, I get it. It is no country for old men. Right, I get it. Yeah, so Mark said that the car bomb ended up being a suicide attempt. But originally, he thought he would kill one of his other buddies from the rare document community just to really frazzle the police. So he was going to kill one of his friends and then decided to blow himself up instead. Whoa. Now, this is a quote from his letter to the parole board that he wrote. After he's been sentenced and everything, down the line. Down the line, right. So he wrote, in October 1985, it seemed like everything started to collapse around me. I could not have come up with the money to pay off investors to keep from being exposed as a fraud. The most important thing in my mind was to keep from being exposed as a fraud in my friends and family, in front of my friends and family. When I say this was the most important thing, I mean it literally. I felt like I would rather take human life or even my own life rather than to be exposed. Hmm. So that's where he was at. And, you know, I'm going to paraphrase some things. He did the letter to the parole board, but then he also did an interview with prosecutors where he kind of talked about his own perspective as to why he did things, Mm -hmm. not just the details. So kind of from his perspective, his forgeries were more harmless experimentation than criminal. Right. So he says he started collecting coins as a little kid. And by the time he was 14, he had developed forgery techniques that could fool other adult coin collectors and dealers. And one of his coins was even sent to the Treasury Department for authentication and came back genuine. So he thought at that point, if people think it's genuine, then it's genuine by definition. Like philosophically, it doesn't matter, right? He's kind of like a nihilist in that way. Yeah, I mean, I guess I don't 
fully disagree with him. Yeah, you he, know? he basically says like authenticity is subjective. The only thing that matters is whether people believe something is genuine. Yeah. And around this time, he also decided God didn't exist mm -hmm. and started training himself to fake out polygraph tests for fun. So by the time he took yeah. the polygraph test as an adult, he had been practicing for 20 years uh, like how to fool polygraph test. That is so smart. I, I seriously, I, I actually mean it when I say, and you know this is true, but like I never drive drunk. I just like never, ever do it. But I have wanted to practice saying the alphabet backwards just in case a cop asked me to do it, <laughs> but I've never done it. It's <laughs> an interesting fact. <laughs> I'm just saying, you gotta, he, you know, that, he, he, that was cool of him to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Pretty evil guy, though. All yeah, right. I mean, in 1980, yeah. he staged the whole discovery of the Anthon transcript with his wife, right? So he forged that document with mm -hmm. all the symbols on it. And even tricked her. And he tricked her. He made up a like a like a paste that looked authentic. Mm -hmm. He glued it into the Bible for Dorley to find. And she had no idea. He did say at one point he walked up to her and said, it's all a fake. Yeah. And she got really like, she started getting really upset and he saw her reaction and then said, no, 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 I'm joking. I'm joking. It's obviously not a fake. Mm. I'm a document collector. Right. Were there other aspects of their lives that he like completely lied to her and everyone? Well, you know, Dorley says basically that the main thing is Mark locked her completely out of his office. So mm -hmm. she was never allowed to go in there. Mm -hmm. And they both just pretended that wasn't weird. She right. was like, we just pretended a lot of stuff wasn't weird. Yeah. I just didn't right. say anything. I guess also secretly believing that God is not real while actively being like a participating member of a church is also a pretty huge lie to Right. Everyone, He'd been like an know. atheist since he was 14. And like he was, you know, a very, you know, his dad was a super prominent member in the right. Mormon community. His wife is super religious. Right. Um, and also he was in charge of the money. So he kind of spent money on whatever he wanted. Like Dorley said, we had four kids. Mm -hmm. We went to go get a new van and then we left with a sports car and a new van. And she was like, I had no idea where that money came from, right. yeah, you know? Yeah. And what Mark's trick was, this is what he said for forging things. Yeah. He would basically just walk in to different, rare book dealers and stuff and just walk up to the guy and say, Hey, what are you looking for these days? Yeah. And then the guy would say, Oh, you know, I'm looking for Oath of a Freeman. And yeah. he'd be like, Oh, that's crazy. I just found it. <laughs> and they would go home and forge it. And he was like, I cannot believe <laughs> it kept working. It kept working. Everybody kind of was like, I can't believe I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Whatever you want, Mark all, all automatically has. Yeah, you know? right. So he had made about $500,000 with his forgeries. So a lot of money. Yeah. His forgeries included George and Martha Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Betsy Ross, John Quincy Adams, Daniel Boone, Andrew Jackson, Mark Twain, John Hancock, Paul Revere, Francis Scott Key. He also wrote a poem pretending to be Emily Dickinson and sold that. Like an original poem? Yeah, he's like an undiscovered Emily Dickinson poem. <laughs> Ah, that rocks. Yeah. He said he wasn't a master forger, but 
experts wanted to build him up because uh-huh. it legitimizes their credibility. That's what they said about all those, the painting, the art forgery yeah. documentary. Yeah. Watch. That was the exact same thing because the people doing the authenticating get their egos wrapped up in it. Right. And they want to believe they're on the precipice of discovering the uh, undiscovered Van Gogh. Yeah, right. So yeah. they would claim his forgery was real because everybody thought Mark was real and their egos are wrapped up in that. Yeah, right. And he said... Also, that he was only really interested in forgeries. He would only sell authentic documents for cover. But he mm. considered himself a professional forger. Yeah, and that's that's where that's where his passion lied. Right. But he kind of undersells himself, right? Uh-huh. He was prolific and he was incredible at copying handwriting. He could mm-hmm. just do it. He says like most of the letters that he wrote, he would finish in a day. You know, mm-hmm. it was really simple for him to look at the handwriting and be able to match it. Yeah. It's kind of like that M- Melissa McCarthy movie. Mm-hmm. Remember when she's writing all the fake correspondences between different literary figures? Which is also a true story. Yeah, right? <laughs> ah, it's so interesting. So some of his other tactics included um, replicating foxing. So foxing is basically what happens to older documents. Old style ink is really acidic mm-hmm. and it burns through the paper over time. So the ink settles lower in older documents if that makes sense like closer to the back and so he would rig up these things and then use an old vacuum cleaner to pull the ink through the document to get it to the other side (laughs) that worked yeah and he made um a box out of an old aquarium and he used water salt and electricity for the love of god don't ask me how Uh uh to create a fake ozone (laughs) that would make the paper appear to be damaged over long periods of time from the environment so he would stick the paper in there and accelerate the ozone damage and just send like electrical waves through some salt water i don't know how i told you don't ask me don't try this at home folks (laughs) uh but he was able to put papers through it and then they would go through all of this yeah high-end testing yeah and look to be authentic he could age things like 150 years is the idea just that he taught himself all of this yeah he did uh that's incredible he mixed his own ink and the ink cracked because the way he oxidized or he fake aged the ink yeah was unnatural and that's ultimately how he was caught is the way that it looked right yeah but under a microscope it would have these little tiny cracks in it you would think that the microscope would be the first thing the FBI would use. I think that like, they were okay, using here's like... here's our eyeballs. Now let's put it under this machine and look closer. I mean, I don't know, dude. <laughs> so, Get a magnifying glass? Okay, now, you know. Well, they had lots of the tests. Light. Like, they were putting it through, like, I can't tell you, like, know, ultraviolet yeah. light, something, something, yeah, to yeah, see yeah. how much. So there was definitely chemical, yeah, like, forensic testing, but just nobody caught this very small detail. Um, so Hoffman pled guilty to forgery and murder mm-hmm. on January 23rd, 1987. <sighs> Dora Lee filed for divorce in 1987 and Mark was excommunicated from the LDS church. Mm-hmm. And while in prison, Mark tried to rally his fellow inmates to put a hit on the board of pardon members <laughs> and also tried to get them to murder George Throckmorton because he was super mad at that guy. <laughs> Which one's George Throckmorton? The one who caught him for the cracked ink. Oh, <laughs> the, the, the one who FBI on agent? Well, he wasn't FBI. He was like a state agent. But yeah, oh, okay. he, but yeah, whatever. The guy who yeah. caught him, he was like, I hate that guy. <laughs> so he tried to get him killed. 
Mark was caught and had more time added to his sentence. Yeah, well, that seems so against his M.O. His M.O. was, I don't care about life or death. I'll kill a friend. It doesn't matter. But then suddenly he's like, I want to now get revenge on this guy. I mean, guy. He's, he's a psychopath. Yeah. It's just like, I don't think he has a... Right. He has no moral compass. I mean, once he's in jail, I'm sure that his moral compass is oriented towards something else. Sure. So, you know, all these things happened to him. Mm-hmm. He got more time added to his sentence. Yeah. And then... Later, he tried to commit suicide by overdosing on sleeping pills that he'd been hoarding from other inmates. Mm. Um, he was revived, but after lying on his right arm for 12 hours straight, mm-hmm. he permanently disabled it. So he lost his forging hand. Oh, wow. That's, what is that, an Emily Dickinson poem? That's the most poetic thing I've ever heard. That's crazy. Yeah, and All he's right. still alive and in prison today. And You know, to paraphrase some of his infamous interview with prosecutors, Mark basically felt like the church believes stuff that works for them. So why was he doing anything different? Why was forgery such a crime, Mm -hmm. right? In an interview with prosecutors, he later said that the feelings of people who bought his forgeries were largely irrelevant, right? He said, their feelings didn't cause concern in my mind as far as my feelings were it's not so much what is genuine and what isn't as what people believe is genuine. Mm. My example would be the Mormon church, which may be a bad example since I'm sure you both believe in it. I don't believe in the religion as far as that Joseph Smith had the first vision or received the plates from the angel Moroni or whatever. It doesn't detract from the social good that the Mormon church can do. To me, it's unimportant if Joseph Smith had that vision or not, Mm. as long as people believe it. The most important thing is that people believe it. Well, that's either a very poignant, deep observation, or he also just watched the Book of Mormon, which is pretty (laughs) much the moral of that musical. When did he say that? Uh, He said that during his confession Uh to prosecutors. Okay. I think people have been saying that forever. Yeah. It's just a human thing. What he did, I think, in my mind, is take that philosophy Mm -hmm. and then just say, like, nothing matters. Nothing is good. Nothing is bad. Everything is a wash. Right. Killing people doesn't matter. Totally. Because they could die in a car accident tomorrow. So Uh, it's a pretty, like, he's very consistent with his philosophy. Was he in the documentary? Is he interviewed in it? No, he refuses to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. He's he's uh, he's totally isolated. And what about Juicy Alfalfa? He's in it all over the place. What's he like? What's his personality like? He's kind of looks like um, the eunuch dude from Game of Thrones, mm-hmm. but instead of like a dress, he's wearing like a pinstripe suit with a mm-hmm. pocket watch. He seems okay. He's, Is he was he in on the whole forgery? Did he? He says he doesn't know. But what's crazy about this documentary right? is that he's got a tick when he's lying. Oh. And they they don't say anything, uh-huh. but they show the tick. It's really subtle. How do they do they say how did you pick up on the tick if they don't say anything? I'm just this is my whatever, but uh-huh. he was when he was younger, right? Yeah. In the eighties and he was on a TV show. They asked him if he had anything to do with it. And he doesn't have a tick at any point in any of the interviews, mm-hmm. at any point in the whole documentary. Yeah. But in the 80s, he starts like blinking really hard and moving his mouth in this really ticky way, like yeah. really extreme. Yeah. So they go, did you have anything to do with this? Right. And he starts making all these crazy facial tics and he says no. And then later in the documentary, there's some rumors or something had been said that implicated him. Basically, they said... 
oh yeah, Shannon Flynn was actually at Mark Hoffman's house the night that he was building the pipe bombs. Mm-hmm. That 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 Shannon Flynn was there with him. Yeah, and they asked him. It sounds like people are saying you were with him the night before the bombings. Yeah. And he starts doing exactly the same crazy facial tick thing he hadn't done the entire mm. time. And he says, no, no, I didn't talk to him at all. Maybe I talk, talked to him on the phone, maybe 2 p.m. or something yeah. like that. But definitely not the night before. I would have yeah. remembered that. And the whole time his face is just exploding with ticks and winks. And Hoffman never threw him under the bus or implicated him. No, no, he, he, he nothing mm-hmm. ever happened to him. And and that's just me talking about sure. facial ticks. That's like yeah. nothing. <laughs> but uh, I just was like, but you asked uh-huh. and like, yeah, I was right. like, he seems like maybe he would know. Yeah. You know, and then at the end, he goes, he was brilliant. You know, he's definitely of the camp of like what he did was wrong. Yeah. But what Mark Hoffman did was wrong. Yeah. But that he was, he's like one of the most prolific forgers in history. Right. Of course. I mean, his stuff is still in circulation now. People could not catch him and they would authenticate it and it would come back right. Like, I mean, it wasn't like he was, he was being tested and it was totally, totally working. And it was big deals. Like yeah. he wasn't just those ones. I mean, they were like tens of thousands of dollars that he was making right. on these deals. And he was doing, he was selling people different copies. Mm-hmm. Like I think that he ha- he was trying to sell Oath of a Freedman to a private collector too, mm-hmm. you know, trying to kind of see if he could sell them both. So did he, did the whole like salamander thing and all of that, was the point of that to take down the Mormon church? Well, in the same way, he talks about it a little bit. I mean, there's uh-huh. no exact answer, but like yeah. from what my understanding of his perspective is that it's to point out his, like the philosophy, like his correct, mm-hmm. you know, philosophy or whatever. Right, to, to prove, prove himself it. right. Right, yeah. it's like it just matters what you believe. And yeah. there was a point in Manchester, I think, where he became really disillusioned with the church. He found out different things like when he's seeing all these documents you see some like irregularities mm-hmm. there was more anti-mormon literature than he had been exposed to before he went to manchester mm-hmm. and so i think he was also feeling like oh the church is cherry picking and then when he would see them be like oh this document is true and then yeah. this document is false yeah. and he wrote both the documents yeah for him he was just like i want to sh- that's just proving my point also one Little detail I found. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was just in a Wikipedia article, but apparently the church already owned the McClellan co- collection. <laughs> really? <laughs> they just forgot that they had it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just in the archives. Yeah, and it didn't have any of like the stuff he was talking about, but they did have like McClellan's diaries that right. were already there. <laughs> and that was also part of this whole thing. I yeah. didn't mention this, but the McClellan collection it is thought to be just it was too much to forge too fast. Mm-hmm. So essentially he thought that the sale of the oath of a freeman would go through but he needed money to bridge the gap and so he came up with the mcclellan collection but to forge like all these diaries and letters and everything yeah. was like he would have had to have done it in three days right and it was just a too, the volume of it was too much well i know it's stupid to sit here and try to like break down this guy's brain or whatever but there's a huge disconnect to me that i just can't rectify between the like this is all a facade and forgery is as real as anything else and nothing matters. And if they die from me killing them or in 30 years from natural causes or a car accident in eight months, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. All of that is nothing on one hand. And on the other hand, he's like, but I don't want them to know I'm a fake. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because even by doing that, you're admitting that the forgery thing is wrong. Yeah. 
Right. That's so bizarre to me. I can't, I can't, I can't get there. Yeah. One might think he's not a genius. (laughs) (laughs) You might even come to the conclusion that he's just a murdering piece of shit. (laughs) All right, Muriel, you want to give these people your resources? For this episode, I watched Murder Among the Mormons that was directed by Jared Hess and Tyler Meesum. Really? Why? Jared Hess. Isn't that, that's Napoleon Dynamite. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure that's Napoleon Dynamite. Hold on, you keep talking while I Google that. Yeah, it's Napoleon Dynamite. Nacho Libre. Gentleman Broncos. I love that guy. Well, he makes uh, movies with his wife. But it sounds like she wasn't a part of this one. She wasn't a part of this, uh, yeah. but his wife actually directed Austin Land, which I very much enjoyed. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that movie was great, too. Man, they're fucking such a cool duo. This is so interesting. Also, Jared and his wife, Jerusha, yeah. they met while attending Brigham Young University. I knew they were Mormon. There's the, their movies are like super wholesome, and I think they're all rated like PG-13, you know, like there's no cursing. I am totally blown away. I can't believe I didn't notice that. Well, uh, I'm glad you're here. Another another husband-wife duo for us to uh, aspire to be. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the watching of the television show and the Wikipediaing and research. And I did all the editing and post-production. And you might have heard some cars go by or some yard work being done next door, but it was, in fact, recorded right here in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Find us on social media at Muriel's Murders. Our DMs are open and you can email us at Muriel's Murders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. Listen, dudes, it really does help us grow. And as promised, we read these things. So we want to shout out some people that have left reviews recently. Bang, bang, 620, K18, 2027, Pam Cake Mix, Nell McGurr, Mac Doogie. We love you guys. Thank you so much. And we're just two little reviews away from hitting 100. So uh, unless you're going to give us one star you don't but here's the thing if you're still listening at this point right and you want to give us one star go ahead and do it but you have to say um the secret password which is uh, i listened all the way to the end and hate it <laughs> so if you write if you, if you give us a one star review and write that then we'll we'll uh we'll give you some love but leave us five star reviews and uh help us get to 100 and we love you <laughs> all right uh, if you're listening to spotify also you can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friends might tune into and that could do something for us you know it's great <laughs> yeah, spread the word please our music is by mario castellini find him on instagram at castellini beats thank you to ryan and ryan at campfire media and if you just really want to get way too deep into our life check out our non-murder podcast where Muriel and i just hang out and you know make our way through this world it's called hella in your 30s and tune in we'd love to uh have you over there as well all right well that's it okay we're done being able to speak well bye ever wanted to hear from the neighbor at nine cloverfield lane or what if i told you that dr loomis's worst patient wasn't michael myers i'm adam peacock host of the podcast my neighbors are dead 
Join me each week as I talk to the lesser-known characters from your favorite horror films. Each week is an all-new, fully improvised journey into the unknown, featuring friends and luminaries from the worlds of comedy, horror, and beyond. New episodes every Tuesday on Campfire Media. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Campfire.